This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on Parkinson's disease. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Parkinson's disease is a common and serious condition. It's the second most common neurodegenerative disorder in the world. Only Alzheimer's disease is more common. And Parkinson's disease can cause a range of complications, from dyskinesias to depression to dementia. So it is important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Dalaram Safarpur, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. And importantly, Dalaram is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on this condition. So Dalaram, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is Parkinson's disease? Hi, um, and thank you for uh, your very kind um, introduction. Um, Parkinson's disease, as you mentioned, is a neurodegenerative disease, um, and we should think about it as a clinical syndrome. As uh, a clinical syndrome that is a combination of both motor and non-motor symptoms. In the past, we used to think about Parkinson's disease mostly as a motor symptom or motor disease that affects um, uh, people and causes symptoms like tremor, uh, uh, bradykinesia, slowness in movements, uh, rigidity, dyskinesia, as you mentioned, uh, with progression of the disease. But these days, and actually I should say more than three decades um, uh, that we know that uh, Parkinson's disease also has a range of non-motor symptoms that actually uh, impact quality of life of patients, if not uh, more than the motor symptoms, just as much as that. And these non-motor symptoms can be a variety of symptoms like um constipation, depression, sexual dysfunction, urinary dysfunction. And uh, we now these days know that if people with Parkinson's disease live long enough, they all will have dementia, Parkinson's disease, dementia in the more advanced stages of the disease. Okay, thank you. Um, Let's move on straightly to diagnosis. How do you make a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease? Yes, uh, diagnosis of Parkinson's disease is mainly a clinical diagnosis. Um, It's very important to um, obtain a very good history from the patient's onset of symptoms and presence of motor symptoms that can precede motor, uh, non-motor symptoms that can precede motor symptoms by more than two decades at times. These patients will tell us that they have loss of um, sense of a smell and have had constipation for more than 10 days before their tremor started. 10 years, I apologize. That is right. And they can have a REM behavioral disorder, which is acting out their dreams. They yell, um, scream, shout. They can fall from bed um, in during their uh, REM uh, phase of their sleep. Later, as the motor symptoms start, these patients can have tremor, 
They can have a slowness in movements, which we call bradykinesia. They can have rigidity and they can have changes in their gait and balance. It's very important that, that when we take this history, we pay extra attention to what we call red flags. Red flags are symptoms and signs that we see during our examination and history taking that um, would put these patients in the category of atypical Parkinsonism or atypical Parkinsonian syndromes. If patients have these red flags, which could be early falls, postural instability, um, early cognitive changes, early autonomic dysfunction, very severe constipation uh, and changes in blood pressure with um, every time that they have changes in their position, these are red flags that should make us think about a possibility of an atypical Parkinsonian syndrome, for example, multiple system atrophy, progressive supranuclear palsy, as opposed to idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Patients with idiopathic Parkinson's disease have a variety of non-motor symptoms, but don't have these um, red flags at onset. Okay, thank you. That's an awful lot in there. And to, to pick on some of the things that other things that you mentioned um parkinson's disease is it a unilateral or a bilateral condition i wonder in terms of the motor manifestations that's a very good question parkinson's disease can um, start with a unilateral or a bilateral presentation uh, sometimes patients can have complete unilateral symptoms and some others will present with bilateral tremor rigidity um, so that um uh, uh, presence of unilateral or bilateral symptoms uh, will not guide us to uh, uh, diagnosis of idiopathic versus an atypical in most cases. Okay, thank you. And people talk about Parkinson's disease, they talk about rigidity. How do patients describe that? Is it stiffness or pain or how is it typically described by the patient? Yeah, rigidity often uh, is described by patients as stiffness. They feel like it's hard for them to move. Getting in and out of chair, getting in and out of car is harder for them. They feel like putting their clothes on is harder, and uh, they at times need help with that. All of these symptoms will affect their quality of life and their ability to live a, a better um, life and and our indications for talking to our patients about the possibility of starting a medication. Okay, thank you. Do you ever see patients who are embarrassed by their tremor, who come to you because they find their tremor embarrassing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, sometimes at the onset, uh, patients are more embarrassed or we talk to them. Um, and, you know, uh, with, with more awareness to the society, uh, when, when people understand more that this is a condition, a brain condition, hopefully in future we will not have this problem. But that is correct. A lot of people are embarrassed by their slowness of their movements, especially their tremor. And tremor is one of the harder symptoms to treat medically as well. And this often becomes a reason why these patients choose to go for deep brain stimulation or um, as a treatment. Okay, thank you. And just sticking with the, the clinical symptoms and signs, which I think are really interesting. You mentioned, I think, two things. You said slow movement and loss of movement, i.e. lack of movement. Mm -hmm. Which is more, or is both 
do people have both? Uh, people can have both. Um, so um, decreased movement, decreased uh, dexterity um, and uh, stiffness, these are all the things that people present with earlier into the disease. In, in a typical idiopathic Parkinson's disease, patients can complain of all these symptoms, but another symptom that is lack of movement or perhaps freezing of movement, freezing of gait, is another symptom that patients complain. Um, and that's when they feel like their feet are uh, kind of uh, stuck to the floor and they are unable to take the next step uh, when they're moving. And that can happen with progression of the disease and ways to manage it would be perhaps physical therapy. That's one of the better options for treatment and also uh, treatment with dopaminergic medications. Okay, thank you. Um, let's move on to investigations. In, if you ha have a patient with classical symptoms of idiopathic Parkinson's disease, what investigations should you do? So in a typical patient that I don't see any red flags, I don't see early falls, I don't see symptoms that make me think this may be an atypical uh, Parkinsonian syndrome, usually we don't need any further investigations. There are other investigations, for example, uh, a DAT scan, a dopaminergic scan that will show that the, there is dopaminergic loss. But in most cases, when we have a typical presentation, there's no need for any ancillary testing. A usually a good response to levodopa um, also will be a good confirmatory um, test that will tell us that this patient has uh, Parkinson's disease. But even that, people who have tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease may not have very good response to levodopa. In the past, they used to say you should watch patients in office, and if they have Parkinson's disease, they will have immediate benefit to levodopa. But nowadays, we understand that that's not the case. We should wait for at least four weeks, and we should increase the dose of levodopa to see what the response is like. Okay. Thank you. That's very, very helpful indeed. And what if, um, oh, so, so the, the atypical Parkinson's syndromes that you described, do they respond to levodopa? They can respond to levodopa um, in some cases, but often they lose their response uh, to levodopa or the medication is not tolerated because of its side effects. Uh, for example, in people with multiple system atrophy, these uh, patients can have very low blood pressure after each dose of uh, levodopa and therefore not tolerated or lose their uh, benefits after a year or so. Thank you. I think you've kind of answered the next question as well, which is about pitfalls in diagnosis, because we've really just been talking about pitfalls in diagnosis. Is there anything else we could add about common pitfalls in diagnosing? Yeah, one of the common pitfalls is people who have history of cerebrovascular disease, people who have um, hypertension, diabetes, or any other risk factors for a stroke. We should always keep in mind that uh, vascular Parkinsonism is also a possibility. These are patients who commonly present uh, more significantly with lower body Parkinsonism, um, and they preserve their arm swing, for example, when you're examining them. So these are, again, red flags that when you examine a patient and see that they have significant symmetrical symptoms in their lower part, but their upper body 
arm swing is preserved, you have to think about red flags. And therefore, in that patient specifically, I would definitely do an MRI brain to look for the white white matter burden. Yeah, and just back to symptoms as well. I remember somebody telling me years ago that people with idiopathic Parkinson's disease progress. They gradually get worse over time. And if he, he said, if you see somebody and they're the same as they were five years ago, it may not be Parkinson's disease. Is that correct or is that a You know, I should say we don't know enough about all subtypes of Parkinson's disease. There are subtypes that are extremely slowly progressive. Uh, what we tell our patients uh, is that we have to watch you for the first five years after onset of symptoms first to establish that is indeed idiopathic Parkinson's disease. And during that five years, you don't develop any of the atypical features. So the first session when I see patients, I don't tell them you have Parkinson's disease. I tell them you have a Parkinsonian syndrome and let me watch you for a few years to see how the progression will be. But you're absolutely right. There should be progression. This is a neurodegenerative disease and there should be a slow and steady progression. And the rate of progression is usually dictated by that rate of progression within the first four or five years. Thank you. I I promise this is gonna be my last question about symptoms. You used to say that older people progress more slowly. Um, Is that correct? Uh, Not necessarily. Um, There are many different subtypes of Parkinson's disease, and um, there are people who um, present um, in an older stage, uh, older ages, and have postural instability, early falls, and these are people who will um, need to use a wheelchair sooner. Um, Again, we really uh, watch for that first few years after onset of symptoms to talk to patients about their progression. And what I tell my patients is that each individual patient will have their own rate of progression. Uh, absorption is different in different people. Uh, there are many different um, uh, uh, factors that play a part in how the disease progresses. Okay, thank you. Um, And moving on now from diagnosis to management, I wonder, can you tell us what is the mainstay of management? The mainstay of management of these patients is levodopa. Levodopa is one of the oldest uh, medications out there, but it's still the best medication to treat um, uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, There have been um, a lot of back and forth, maybe 15, 20 years ago, people were a little scared of levodopa, thinking that this could be a toxic medication. We should avoid it and we should only prescribe it in later stages of the disease. There uh, there were always questions about, am I going to develop resistance to levodopa if I start it? But uh, a major study that was done, a LEAP study, L-E-A-P, LEAP study that was done, this clinical trial showed that uh, people who started levodopa earlier actually had better quality of life, less falls. So these days, when we talk to our patients about treatment, we say the start of treatment should be when your quality of life is impaired by the symptoms and we should not avoid levodopa. I guess the, another question is, do you start levodopa or do you start uh, a dopamine 
protagonist? That's a very good question. So um, mostly um, it really depends on the style of the, the a physician who treats. But I and many of the people, after reading the trials that have been done on levodopa, we prefer levodopa. Um, we know that levodopa can be associated, uh, higher doses of levodopa can be associated with dyskinesia more than dopamine agonists, but also dopamine agonists have a lot of side effects that make them not the most ideal medication. Uh, among these side effects, you can think about confusion, hallucinations, um, edema in lower extremities, and compulsive behavior that can change people's lives. The, these people can have compulsive gambling. Um, and beyond that, uh, among side effects that we rarely talk about is um, uh, a, a rapid feeling of need for sleep. So these patients are younger people, are on agonists, they're driving to work, and suddenly they feel like they have to sleep, a sleep attacks, and that can be dangerous for the patients. So after thinking about possible benefits, side effects, we prefer levodopa. Um, that, uh, compared to agonists. Okay, and then as the disease progresses, um, what other treatments would you start, or would you increase the dose of levodopa, or, or start additional treatment? So treatment of Parkinson's disease is really a tailored treatment and should be tailored for every individual patient, depending on how their symptoms are changing and what exactly are we trying to achieve with um, adding a medication. One of the common symptoms that these patients can have is called fluctuation, which means that in response to levodopa, they feel quote-unquote on, which means that the medication is working for them. And then after a few hours, they feel quote-unquote off, which means that the medication is not working anymore. With progression of the disease, these patients will have these um, swings between on and off symptoms, and therefore their quality of life will be impaired. There are several ways to treat that. One of them would be adding a COMT inhibitor, which will prolong the, be uh, the benefits of uh, levodopa, but that only ben improves it by 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So perhaps increasing the frequency of levodopa is another option. There are some people who will develop um, symptoms like depression towards the end of each dose. Uh, in that case, dopamine agonists are a good addition that can help, but at a low dose and always with a discussion of um, possible side effects. Um, people who develop dyskinesia, there are medications out there like amantadine that can help with dyskinesia. And as the disease progresses, we uh, talk about deep brain stimulation surgery with the patients uh, as a uh, possible treatment. And, and because this uh, this podcast is really for generalists um, who are sometimes most interested in um, non-motor symptoms and helping with those, uh, or, 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 or those are the, the clinicians that people with Parkinson's disease come to with the non-motor symptoms. Tell me about management of constipation, say. Is it standard management? Absolutely. Absolutely. Constipation is one of the significant symptoms that changes quality of life of patients. We try to talk about constipation in the very first uh, time that they come to office. And initially, we talk to patients about uh, lifestyle modifications. Make sure you drink a lot of water. Make sure you 
drink coffee, make sure you exercise, make sure that you do all these interventions to prevent worsening of constipation. And using uh, medications like uh, Miralax that are over-the-counter that can help with constipation as needed initially is a good um, is a good uh, approach. As the disease progresses, if constipation is is worse, we talk about medications that can improve motility of the uh, the colon. And one of the newer medications out there is Procalopride that we we can try. I often at this stage uh, refer my patients to gastroenterologists to help me uh, manage their constipation um, um, as well. Okay, thank you. What about, what about depression, management of depression in patients with Parkinson's disease? Any tips you can give about that? Yeah, so uh, depression is one of those more common um, non-motor symptoms. 60% of patients with Parkinson's disease can have depression and anxiety, and they, they go hand in hand. There are two different forms of depression. One that I briefly touched on, um, is depression that is more prevalent during off time. So these are people that when their levodopa wears off, they feel anxi anxiety and depression is back. And then when their medication kicks in and it starts working, they feel better. In those cases, management of anxiety and depression can simply be by increasing frequency of their dopaminergic medication, adjusting their dopaminergic medication. Um, if that's not the case and they're generally very anxious and um, depressed, you can try uh, medications like SSRIs um, uh, that uh, in a younger patient, you should talk about their possible side effects, uh, often uh, like sexual dysfunction. Um, and we always refer to, uh, these patients to um, our counselors as well. Uh, because this is a, a progressive neurodegenerative dis disorder and um, uh, presence of the counselor uh, in their life will be really helpful as well. Okay, thank you. And last question uh, about, about dementia, because you mentioned dementia at, at the very start. Any yeah. tips on diagnosis or management of dementia in patients with Parkinson's disease? Absolutely. And that's a very good point. So what we shouldn't forget is dementia, uh, because that also um, affects their, their ability to enjoy their life and participate in life. One of the most important things we should consider is that this is one of the symptoms that can happen within the first 10 years, usually six, seven years into the disease, patients can have what we call mild cognitive impairment. And as the disease progresses, this can get worse. Um, usually as a standard of care, we have to do cognitive assessment at least once a year. And in patients with Parkinson's disease, we definitely have to go over their list of medications to make sure we are not uh, putting them on medication that can uh, advance their likelihood of progression of cognitive decline. These are medications that have higher anticholinergic burden, medications that with their higher anticholinergic side effects can worsen um, uh, uh, cognitive decline. We should make sure always their list of medication is reviewed. And um, later into the disease, when they have mild cognitive impairment, when they're 
uh, attention is impaired. They can't really uh, uh, hold a conversation and have difficulty with multitasking. You can think about adding medications like cholinesterase inhibitors, um, uh, rivastigmine, or donepezil would be a good option. I always share with my patients applications that they can download on their iPhone or iPad for a cognitive uh, training. These are applications that um, include Sudoku puzzles and uh, crossword puzzles and all of these that I tell them this is your mind exercise and you have to invest in it. Okay. Thank you very much, Dalaram. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful. And we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.